Book Three, Chapter Seven of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Three, Sophia. CHAPTER Seven, SUCCESS One. Sophia lay awake one night in the room lately quitted by Callier. That silent negation of individuality had come and gone, and left scarcely any record of himself, either in his room or in the memories of those who surrounded his existence in the house. Sophia had decided to descend from the sixth floor— partly because the temptation of a large room, after months in a cubicle, was rather strong, but more because of late she had been obliged to barricade the door of the cubicle with a chest of drawers, owing to the propensities of a new tenant of the sixth floor. It was useless to complain to the concierge. The sole effective argument was the chest of drawers, and even that was frailer than Sophia could have wished. Hence, finally, her retreat. She heard the front door of the flat open. Then it was shut with nervous violence. The resonance of its closing would certainly have wakened less accomplished sleepers than Monsieur Niepce and his friend, whose snores continued with undisturbed regularity. After a pause of shuffling, a match was struck, and feet crept across the corridor with the most exaggerated precautions against noise. There followed the unintentional bang of another door. It was decidedly the entry of a man without the slightest natural aptitude for furtive eruptions. The clock in M. Niepce's room, which the grocer had persuaded to exact timekeeping, chimed three with its delicate ting. For several days past, Chirac had been mysteriously engaged very late at the bureau of the débats. No one knew the nature of his employment. He said nothing except to inform Sophia that he would continue to come home about three o'clock until further notice— she had insisted on leaving in his room the materials and apparatus for a light meal. Naturally he had protested, with the irrational obstinacy of a physically weak man, who sticks to it that he can defy the laws of nature, but he had protested in vain. His general conduct since Christmas Day had frightened Sophia, in spite of her tendency to stifle facile alarms at their birth. He had eaten scarcely anything at all, and he went about with the face of a man dying of a broken heart. The change in him was indeed tragic, and instead of improving, he grew worse. "'Have I done this?' Sophia asked herself. "'It is impossible that I should have done this. It is absurd and ridiculous that he should behave so.' Her thoughts were employed alternately in sympathising with him and in despising him, in blaming herself and in blaming him. When they spoke— they spoke awkwardly, as though one or both of them had committed a shameful crime which could not even be mentioned. The atmosphere of the flat was tainted by the horror, and Sophia could not offer him a bowl of soup without wondering how he would look at her, or avoid looking, and without carefully arranging in advance her own gestures and speech. Existence was a nightmare of self-consciousness. "'At last they have unmasked their batteries!' he had exclaimed with painful gaiety two days after Christmas, when the besiegers had recommenced their cannonade. He tried to imitate the strange general joy of the city, which had been roused from apathy by the recurrence of a familiar noise, 
but the effort was a deplorable failure, and Sophia condemned not merely the failure of Chirac's imitation, but the thing imitated. Childish, she thought, yet despise the feebleness of Chirac's behaviour as she might, she was deeply impressed, genuinely astonished, by the gravity and persistence of the symptoms. "'He must have been getting himself into a state about me for a long time,' she thought. "'Surely he could not have gone mad like this all in a day or two. "'But I never noticed anything. "'No, honestly, I never noticed anything.' "'And just as her behaviour in the restaurant had shaken Chirac's confidence in his knowledge of the other sex, "'so now the singular behaviour of Chirac shook hers. "'She was taken aback. "'She was frightened, though she pretended not to be frightened. She had lived over and over again the scene in the restaurant. She asked herself over and over again if really she had not beforehand expected him to make love to her in the restaurant. She could not decide exactly when she had begun to expect a declaration, but probably a long time before the meal was finished. She had foreseen it, and might have stopped it, but she had not chosen to stop it. Curiosity concerning not merely him, but also herself, had tempted her tacitly to encourage him. She asked herself over and over again why she had repulsed him. It struck her as curious that she had repulsed him. Was it because she was a married woman? Was it because she had moral scruples? Was it at bottom because she did not care for him? Was it because she could not care for anybody? Was it because his fervid manner of love-making offended her English phlegm? And did she feel pleased or displeased by his forbearance in not renewing the assault? She could not answer. She did not know. But all the time she knew that she wanted love. Only she conceived a different kind of love, placid, regular, somewhat stern, somewhat above the plane of whims, moods, caresses, and all mere fleshly contacts. Not that she considered she despised these things, though she did— what she wanted was a love that was too proud, too independent, to exhibit frankly either its joy or its pain. She hated the display of sentiment, and even in the most intimate abandonments she would have made reserves, and would have expected reserves, trusting to a lover's powers of divination and to her own. The foundation of her character was a haughty moral independence, and this quality was what she most admired in others. Chirac's inability to draw from his own pride strength to sustain himself against the blow of her refusal gradually killed in her the sexual desire which he had aroused, and which, during a few days, flickered up under the stimulus of fancy and of regret. Sophia saw with increasing clearness that her unreasoning instinct had been right in saying him nay, and when, in spite of this, regret still visited her, she would comfort herself in thinking— I cannot be bothered with all that sort of thing. It is not worth while. What does it lead to? Is not life complicated enough without that? No, no, I will stay as I am. At any rate, I know what I am in for as things are. And she would reflect upon her hopeful financial situation, and the approaching prospect of a constantly sufficient income, and a little thrill of impatience against the interminable and gigantic foolishness of the siege would take her. But her self-consciousness, in presence of Chirac, did not abate. As she lay in bed, she awaited accustomed sounds, which should have connoted Chirac's definite retirement for the night. Her ear, however, caught no sound whatever from his room. Then she imagined that there was a smell of burning in the flat. 
She sat up and sniffed anxiously, of a sudden wide awake and apprehensive. And then she was sure that the smell of burning was not in her imagination. The bedroom was in perfect darkness. Feverishly she searched with her right hand for the matches on the night-table, and knocked candlestick and matches to the floor. She seized her dressing-gown, which was spread over the bed, and put it on, aiming for the door. Her feet were bare. She discovered the door. In the passage she could discern nothing at first, and then she made out a thin line of light, which indicated the bottom of Chirac's door. The smell of burning was strong and unmistakable. She went towards the faint light, fumbled for the door-handle with her palm, and opened. It did not occur to her to call out and ask what was the matter. The house was not on fire, but it might have been. She had left on the table at the foot of Chirac's bed a small cooking-lamp and a saucepan of bouillon. All that Chirac had to do was to ignite the lamp and put the saucepan on it. He had ignited the lamp, having previously raised the double wicks, and had then dropped into the chair by the table just as he was, and sunk forward, and gone to sleep with his head lying sideways on the table. He had not put the saucepan on the lamp, he had not lowered the wicks, and the flames, capped with thick black smoke, were waving slowly to and fro within a few inches of his loose hair. His hat had rolled along the floor, he was wearing his great overcoat and one woollen glove, the other glove had lodged on his slanting knee. A candle was also burning. Sophia hastened forward, as it were surreptitiously, and with a forward-reaching movement turned down the wicks of the lamp. Black specks were falling on the table. Happily the saucepan was covered, or the bouillon would have been ruined. Chirac made a heart-rending spectacle, and Sophia was aware of the deep and painful emotion in seeing him thus. He must have been utterly exhausted and broken by loss of sleep. He was a man incapable of regular hours, incapable of treating his body with decency. Though going to bed at three o'clock, he had continued to rise at his usual hour, he looked like one dead, but more sad, more wistful. Out in the street a fog reigned, and his thin, draggled beard was jewelled with the moisture of it. His attitude had the unconsidered and violent prostration of an overspent dog. The beaten animal in him was expressed in every detail of that posture. It showed even in his white, drawn eyelids, and in the falling of a finger. All his face was very sad. It appealed for mercy— as the undefended face of sleep always appeals. It was so helpless, so exposed, so simple. It recalled Sophia to a sense of the inner mysteries of life, reminding her somehow that humanity walked ever on a thin crust over terrific abysses. She did not physically shudder, but her soul shuddered. She mechanically placed the saucepan on the lamp, and the noise awakened Chirac. He groaned. At first he did not perceive her, when he saw that someone was looking down at him, he did not immediately realise who this someone was. He rubbed his eyes with his fists, exactly like a baby, and sat up, and the chair cracked. "'What, then?' he demanded. "'Oh, madame, I, I ask for pardon. What—' "'You have nearly destroyed the house,' she said. "'I smelt fire, and I came in. I was just in time. There is no danger now, but please be careful.' She made as if to move towards the door— "'But what did I do?' he asked, his eyelids wavering. She explained. He rose from his chair unsteadily. She told him to sit down again, and he obeyed, as though in a dream. "'I can go now,' she
she said. "'Wait one moment,' he murmured. "'I ask pardon. I should not know how to thank you. You are truly too good. Will you wait one moment?' His tone was one of supplication. He gazed at her, a little dazzled by the light and by her. The lamp and the candle illumined the lower part of her face theatrically, and showed the texture of her blue flannel peignoir. The pattern of a part of the lace collar was silhouetted in shadow on her cheek. Her face was flushed, and her hair hung down unconfined. Evidently he could not recover from his excusable astonishment at the apparition of such a figure in his room. "'What is it now?' she said. The faint quizzical emphasis which she put on the now indicated the essential of her thought. The sight of him touched her, and filled her with a womanly sympathy. But that sympathy was only the envelope of her disdain of him. She could not admire weakness. She could but pity it, with a pity in which scorn was mingled. Her instinct was to treat him as a child. He had failed in human dignity, and it seemed to her as if she had not previously been quite certain whether she could not love him, but that now she was quite certain. She was close to him. She saw the wounds of a soul that could not hide its wounds, and she resented the sight. She was hard. She would not make allowances. And she revelled in her hardness. Contempt, a good-natured, kindly, forgiving contempt, that was the kernel of the sympathy which exteriorly warmed her. Contempt for the lack of self-control which had resulted in this swift degeneration of a man into a tortured victim, Contempt for the lack of perspective, which magnified a mere mushroom passion till it filled the whole field of life. Contempt for this feminine slavery to sentiment. She felt that she might have been able to give herself to Chirac as one gives a toy to an infant. But of loving him? No. She was conscious of an immeasurable superiority to him, for she was conscious of the freedom of a strong mind. "'I, I wanted to tell you,' said he, "'I am going away.' "'Where?' she asked. "'Out of Paris.' "'Out of Paris? How?' "'By balloon. My journal. It is an affair of great importance. You understand, I offered myself. What would you?' "'It is dangerous,' she observed, waiting to see if he would put on the silly air of one who does not understand fear. "'Oh!' the poor fellow muttered, with the fatuous intonation and a snapping of the fingers, uh, "'That is all the same to me. Yes, it is dangerous. Yes, it is dangerous,' he repeated. "'But what would you? For me?' She wished that she had not mentioned danger. It hurt her to watch him incurring her ironic disdain. "'It will be the night after to-morrow,' he said, "'in the courtyard with the garde du Nord. I want you to come and see me go. I particularly want you to come and see me go. I have asked Carlier to escort you. He might have been saying, I am offering myself to martyrdom, and you must assist at the spectacle. She despised him yet more. Oh, be tranquil, he said. I shall not worry you. Never shall I speak to you again of my love. I know you. I know it would be useless. But I hope you will come and wish me bon voyage. "'Of course, if you really wish it,' she replied with cheerful coolness. He seized her hand and kissed it. Once it had pleased her when he kissed her hand, but now she did not like it. It seemed hysterical and foolish to her. She felt her feet to be stone-cold on the floor. "'I'll leave you now,' she said. "'Please eat your soup.' She escaped, 
hoping he would not espy her feet. 2. The courtyard of the Nord railway station was lighted by oil lamps taken from locomotives. Their silvered reflectors threw dazzling rays from all sides on the under portion of the immense yellow mass of the balloon. The upper portion was swaying to and fro with gigantic ungainliness in the strong breeze. It was only a small balloon, as balloons are measured, but it seemed monstrous as it wavered over the human forms that were agitating themselves beneath it. The cordage was silhouetted against the yellow taffetas as high up as the widest diameter of the balloon, but above that all was vague, and even spectators standing at a distance could not clearly separate the summit of the great sphere from the darkly moving sky. The car, held by ropes fastened to stakes, rose now and then a few inches uneasily from the ground. The sombre and severe architecture of the station buildings enclosed the balloon on every hand. It had only one way of escape. Over the roofs of that architecture, which shut out the sounds of the city, came the irregular booming of the bombardment. Shells were falling in the southern quarters of Paris, doing perhaps not a great deal of damage, but still plunging occasionally into the midst of some domestic interior, and making a sad mess of it. The Parisians were convinced that the shells were aimed maliciously at hospitals and museums, and when a child happened to be blown to pieces, their unspoken comments upon the Prussian savagery were bitter. Their faces said, "'Those barbarians cannot even spare our children.' They amused themselves by creating a market in shells, paying more for a live shell than a dead one, and modifying the tariff according to the supply." and as the cattle market was empty, and the vegetable market was empty, and beasts no longer pastured on the grass of the parks, and the twenty-five million rats of the metropolis were too numerous to furnish interest to spectators, and the bourse was practically deserted, the traffic in shells sustained the starving mercantile instinct during a very dull period. But the effect on the nerves was deleterious. The nerves of everybody were like nothing but a raw wound, Violent anger would spring up magically out of laughter, and blows out of caresses. This indirect consequence of the bombardment was particularly noticeable in the group of men under the balloon. Each behaved as if he were controlling his temper in the most difficult circumstances. Constantly they all gazed upwards into the sky, though nothing could possibly be distinguished there, save the blurred edge of a flying cloud. But the booming came from that sky, the shells that were dropping on Mont Rouge came out of that sky, and the balloon was going up into it. The balloon was ascending into its mysteries to brave its dangers, to sweep over the encircling ring of fire and savages. Sophia stood apart with Carlier. Carlier had indicated a particular spot under the shelter of the colonnade, where he said it was imperative that they should post themselves. Having guided Sophia to this spot, and impressed upon her that they were not to move, he seemed to consider that the activity of his role was finished, and spoke no word. With the very high silk hat which he always wore, and a thin old-fashioned overcoat whose collar was turned up, he made rather a grotesque figure. Fortunately the night was not very cold, or he might have passively frozen to death on the edge of that feverish group. Sophia soon ignored him. She watched the balloon— an aristocratic old man leant against the car, watch in hand. At intervals he scowled or stamped his foot. An old sailor, tranquilly smoking a pipe, walked round and round the balloon, staring at it. 
Once he climbed up into the rigging, and once he jumped into the car and angrily threw out a bag which someone had placed in it. But for the most part he was calm. Other persons of authority hurried about, talking and gesticulating, and a number of workmen waited idly for orders. "'Where is Chirac?' suddenly cried the old man with the watch. Several voices deferentially answered, and a man ran away into the gloom on an errand. Then Chirac appeared, nervous, self-conscious, restless. He was enveloped in a fur coat that Sophia had never seen before, and he carried, dangling in his hand, a cage containing six pigeons, whose whiteness stirred uneasily within it. The sailor took the cage from him, and all the persons of authority gathered round to inspect the wonderful birds, upon which, apparently, momentous affairs depended. When the group separated, the sailor was to be seen bending over the edge of the car to deposit the cage safely. He then got into the car, still smoking his pipe, and perched himself negligently on the wickerwork. The man with the watch was conversing with Chirac. Chirac nodded his head frequently in acquiescence, and seemed to be saying all the time, "'Yes, sir. Perfectly, sir. I understand, sir. Yes, sir.' Suddenly Chirac turned to the car and put a question to the sailor, who shook his head, whereupon Chirac gave a gesture of submissive despair to the man with the watch, and in an instant the whole throng was in a ferment. "'The victuals!' cried the man with the watch. "'The victuals! Name of God! Must one be indeed an idiot to forget the victuals? Name of God! Of God!' Sophia smiled at the agitation, and at the inefficient management, which had never thought of food, for it appeared that the food had not merely been forgotten. It was a question which had not even been considered. She could not help despising all that crowd of self-important and fussy males, to whom the idea had not occurred that even balloonists must eat. And she wondered whether everything was done like that. After a delay that seemed very long, the problem of victuals was solved, chiefly, as far as Sophia could judge, by means of cakes of chocolate and bottles of wine. "'It is enough! It is enough!' Chirac shouted passionately several times to a knot of men, who began to argue with him. Then he gazed round furtively, and with an inflation of the chest and a patting of his fur coat, he came directly towards Sophia. Evidently, Sophia's position had been prearranged between him and Carlier. They could forget food, but they could think of Sophia's position. All eyes followed him. Those eyes could not, in the gloom, distinguish Sophia's beauty, but they could see that she was young and slim and elegant and of foreign carriage. That was enough. The very air seemed to vibrate with the intense curiosity of those eyes. And immediately Chirac grew into the hero of some brilliant and romantic adventure. Immediately he was envied and admired by every man of authority present. What was she? Who was she? Was it a serious passion, or simply a caprice? Had she flung herself at him? It was undeniable that lovely creatures did sometimes fling themselves at lucky mediocrities. Was she a married woman? An artiste? A girl? Such queries thumped beneath overcoats, while the correctness of a ceremonial demeanour was strictly observed. Chirac uncovered and kissed her hand. The wind disarranged his hair. She saw that his face was very pale and anxious, beneath the swagger of a sincere desire to be brave. "'Well, it is the moment,' he said. "'Did you forget all the food?' she asked. He shrugged his shoulders. <gasps> "'What will you? One cannot think of everything.' 
"'I hope you will have a safe voyage,' she said. She had already taken leave of him once in the house, and heard all about the balloon and the sailor aeronaut and the preparations, and now she had nothing to say, nothing whatever. He shrugged his shoulders again. "'I hope so,' he murmured, but in a tone to convey that he had no such hope. "'The wind isn't too strong,' she suggested. He shrugged his shoulders again. <gasps> "'What would you? Is it in the direction you want?' "'Yes, nearly,' he admitted, unwillingly. Then, rousing himself, "'Eh, well, madame, you have been extremely amiable to come. I held to it very much that you should come. It is because of you I quit Paris.' She resented the speech by a frown. "'Ah!' he implored in a whisper. "'Do not do that. Smile on me. After all, it is not my fault.' "'Remember, this may be the last time I see you, the last time I regard your eyes.' She smiled. She was convinced of the genuineness of the emotion which expressed itself in all this flamboyant behaviour, and she had to make excuses to herself on behalf of Chirac. She smiled to give him pleasure. The hard common sense in her might sneer, but indubitably she was the centre of a romantic episode. The balloon, darkly swinging there— the men waiting, the secrecy of the mission, and Chirac, bareheaded in the wind that was to whisk him away, telling her in fatalistic accents that her image had devastated his life, while envious aspirants watched their colloquy. Yes, it was romantic, and she was beautiful. Her beauty was an active reality that went about the world playing tricks in spite of herself. The thoughts that passed through her mind were the large, splendid thoughts of romance, and it was Chirac who had aroused them. A real drama existed then, triumphing over the accidental absurdities and pettinesses of the situation. Her final words to Chirac were tender and encouraging. He hurried back to the balloon, resuming his cap. He was received with the respect due to one who comes fresh from conquest. He was sacred. Sophia rejoined Carlier, who had withdrawn, and began to talk to him with a self-conscious garrulity. She spoke without reason, and scarcely noticed what she was saying. Already Chirac was snatched out of her life, as other beings, so many of them, had been snatched. She thought of their first meetings, and of the sympathy which had always united them. He had lost his simplicity now, in the self-created crisis of his fate, and had sunk in her esteem and she was determined to like him all the more because he had sunk in her esteem. She wondered whether he really had undertaken this adventure from sentimental disappointment. She wondered whether, if she had not forgotten to wind her watch one night, they would still have been living quietly under the same roof in the Rue Breda. The sailor climbed definitely into the car. He had covered himself with a large cloak. Chirac had got one leg over the side of the car— and eight men were standing by the ropes, when a horse's hooves clattered through the guarded entrance to the courtyard, amid an uproar of sudden excitement. The shiny chest of the horse was flecked with the classic foam. "'A telegram from the Governor of Paris!' As the orderly, checking his mount, approached the group, even the old man with the watch raised his hat. The orderly responded, bent down to make an inquiry, which Chirac answered, and then, with another exchange of salutes, the official telegram was handed over to Chirac, and the horse backed away from the crowd. It was quite thrilling. Carlier was thrilled. 
"'He is never too prompt, the governor. "'It is a quality,' said Carlier, with irony. "'Chirac entered the car, "'and then the old man with the watch "'drew a black bag from the shadow behind him "'and entrusted it to Chirac, "'who accepted it with a profound deference and hid it. "'The sailor began to issue commands. "'The men at the ropes were bending down now. "'Suddenly the balloon rose about a foot and trembled. "'The sailor continued to shout.' All the persons of authority gazed motionless at the balloon. The moment of suspense was eternal. "'Let go all!' cried the sailor, standing up and clinging to the cordage. Chirac was seated in the car, a mass of dark fur with a small patch of white in it. The men at the ropes were a knot of struggling, confused figures. One side of the car tilted up, and the sailor was nearly pitched out. Three men at the other side had failed to free the ropes.' "'Let go, corpses!' the sailor yelled at them. The balloon jumped, as if it were drawn by some terrific impulse from the skies. "'Adieu!' called Chirac, pulling his cap off and waving it. "'Adieu! Bon voyage! Bon voyage!' the little crowd cheered. And then, "'Vive la France!' throats tightened, including Sophia's. But the top of the balloon had leant over, destroying its pear shape and the whole mass swerved violently towards the wall of the station, the car swinging under it like a toy, and an anchor under the car. There was a cry of alarm. Then the great ball leapt again, and swept over the high glass roof, escaping by inches the spouting. The cheers expired instantly. The balloon was gone. It was spirited away as if by some furious and mighty power that had grown impatient in waiting for it. There remained a few seconds on the collective retina of the spectators, a vision of the inclined car swinging near the roof like the tail of a kite. And then nothing. Blankness. Blackness. Already the balloon was lost to sight in the vast stormy ocean of the night, a plaything of the winds. The spectators became once more aware of the dull booming of the cannonade. The balloon was already perhaps flying unseen amid the rack over those guns. Sophia involuntarily caught her breath. A chill of loneliness, of purposeless, numbed her being. Nobody ever saw Chirac or the old sailor again. The sea must have swallowed them. Of the sixty-five balloons that left Paris during the siege, two were not heard of. This was the first of the two. Chirac had, at any rate, not magnified the peril, though his intention was undoubtedly to magnify it. Three. This was the end of Sophia's romantic adventures in France. Soon afterwards the Germans entered Paris by mutual agreement, and made a point of seeing the Louvre, and departed, amid the silence of a city. For Sophia the conclusion of the siege meant chiefly that prices went down. Long before supplies from outside could reach Paris, the shop windows were suddenly full of goods which had arrived from the shopkeepers alone knew where. Sophia, with the stock in her cellar, could have held out for several weeks more, and it annoyed her that she had not sold more of her good things while good things were worth gold. The signing of a treaty at Versailles reduced the value of Sophia's two remaining hams from about five pounds apiece to the usual price of hams. However, at the end of January she found herself in possession of a capital of about eight thousand francs, all the furniture of the flat, and a reputation." She had earned it all. Nothing could destroy the structure of her beauty, but she looked worn and appreciably older. 
She wondered often when Chirac would return. She might have written to Carlier or to the paper, but she did not. It was Neeps who discovered in a newspaper that Chirac's balloon had miscarried. At the moment the news did not affect her at all, but after several days she began to feel her loss in a dull sort of way, and she felt it more and more, though never acutely. She was perfectly convinced that Chirac could never have attracted her powerfully. She continued to dream, at rare intervals, of the kind of passion that would have satisfied her, glowing but banked down like a fire in some fine chamber of a rich but careful household. She was speculating upon what her future would be, and whether by inertia she was doomed to stay for ever in the Rue Breda when the Commune caught her. She was more vexed than frightened by the Commune, vexed that a city so in need of repose and industry should indulge in such antics. For many people the Commune was a worse experience than the siege, but not for Sophia. She was a woman and a foreigner. Neeps was infinitely more disturbed than Sophia. He went in fear of his life. Sophia would go out to market and take her chances. It is true that during one period the whole population of the house went to live in the cellars, and orders to the butcher and other tradesmen were given over the party wall into the adjoining courtyard, which communicated with an alley, a strange existence, and possibly perilous. But the women who passed through it, and had also passed through the siege, were not very much intimidated by it, unless they happened to have husbands or lovers who were active politicians. Sophia did not cease, during the greater part of the year 1871, to make a living and to save money. She watched every sou, and she developed a tendency to demand from her tenants all that they could pay. She excused this to herself by ostentatiously declaring every detail of her prices in advance. It came to the same thing in the end, with this advantage, that the bills did not lead to unpleasantness. Her difficulties commenced when Paris at last definitely resumed its normal aspect and life, when all the women and children came back to those city termini which they had left in such huddled hysterical throngs, when flats were reopened that had been long shut, and men who for a whole year had had the disadvantages and the advantages of being without wife and family anchored themselves once more to the hearth. Then it was that Sophia failed to keep all her rooms let. She could have let them easily and constantly and at high rents, but not to men without encumbrances. Nearly every day she refused attractive tenants in pretty hats or agreeable gentlemen who only wanted a room on condition that they might offer hospitality to a dashing petticoat. It was useless to proclaim aloud that her house was serious. The ambition of the majority of these joyous persons was to live in a serious house, because each was sure that at bottom he or she was a serious person, and quite different from the rest of the joyous world. The character of Sophia's flat, instead of repelling the wrong kind of aspirant, infallibly drew just that kind. Hope was inextinguishable in these bosoms. They heard that there would be no chance for them at Sophia's, but they tried nevertheless. And occasionally Sophia would make a mistake, and grave unpleasantness would occur before the mistake could be rectified. The fact was that the street was too much for her. Few people would credit that there was a serious boarding-house in the Rue Breda, the police themselves would not credit it, and Sophia's beauty was against her. 
At that time the Rue Breda was perhaps the most notorious street in the centre of Paris, at the height of its reputation as a warren of individual improprieties, most busily creating that prejudice against itself which, over thirty years later, forced the authorities to change its name in obedience to the wish of its tradesmen. When Sophia went out at about eleven o'clock in the morning with her reticule to buy, the street was littered with women who had gone out with reticules to buy. But whereas Sophia was fully dressed and wore headgear, the others were in dressing-gown and slippers, or opera cloak and slippers, having slid directly out of unspeakable beds and omitted to brush their hair out of their puffy eyes. In the little shops of the Rue Breda, the Rue Notre-Dame de Lorette and the Rue des Martyrs, you were very close indeed to the primitive instincts of human nature. It was wonderful. It was amusing. It was excitingly picturesque and the universality of the manners rendered moral indignation absurd. But the neighbourhood was certainly not one in which a woman of Sophia's race, training, and character could comfortably earn a living, or even exist. She could not fight against the entire street. She, and not the street, was out of place and in the wrong. Little wonder that the neighbours lifted their shoulders when they spoke of her. What beautiful woman but a mad Englishwoman would have the idea of establishing herself in the Rue Breda? with the intention of living like a nun, and compelling others to do the same. By dint of continual ingenuity, Sophia continued to win somewhat more than her expenses, but she was slowly driven to admit to herself that the situation could not last. Then, one day, she saw in Galignani's messenger an advertisement of an English pension for sale in the Rue Lord Byron, in the Champs-Élysées quarter. It belonged to some people named Frenchham, and had enjoyed a certain popularity before the war. The proprietor and his wife, however, had not sufficiently allowed for the vicissitudes of politics in Paris. Instead of saving money during their popularity, they had put it on the back and on the fingers of Mrs. Frencham. The siege and the commune had almost ruined them. With capital they might have restored themselves to their former pride, but their capital was exhausted. Sophia answered the advertisement. She impressed the Frenchams, who were delighted with the prospect of dealing in business, with an honest English face. Like many English people abroad, they were most strangely obsessed by the notion that they had quitted an island of honest men to live among thieves and robbers. They always implied that dishonesty was unknown in Britain. They offered, if she would take over the lease, to sell all their furniture and their renown for ten thousand francs. She declined, the price seeming absurd to her. When they asked her to name a price, she said that she preferred not to do so. Upon entreaty, she said four thousand francs. They then allowed her to see that they considered her to have been quite right in hesitating to name a price so ridiculous, and their confidence in the honest English face seemed to have been shocked. Sophia left. When she got back to the Rue Breda, she was relieved that the matter had come to nothing. She did not precisely foresee what her future was to be, but at any rate she knew she shrank from the responsibility of the pension Frenchham. The next morning she received a letter offering to accept six thousand. She wrote and declined. She was indifferent, and she would not budge from four thousand. The Frenchams gave way. They were pained, but they gave way. The glitter of four thousand francs in cash and freedom was too tempting. Thus Sophia became the proprietress of the Pension Frenchham, in the cold and correct Rue Lord Byron. 
She made room in it for nearly all her other furniture, so that instead of being under-furnished, as pensions usually are, it was over-furnished. She was extremely timid at first, for the rent alone was four thousand francs a year, and the prices of the quarter were alarmingly different from those of the Rue Breda. She lost a lot of sleep. For some nights, after she had been installed in the Rue Lord Byron about a fortnight, she scarcely slept at all, and she ate no more than she slept. She cut down expenditure to the very lowest, and frequently walked over to the Rue Breda to do her marketing. With the aid of a charwoman at six sous an hour, she accomplished everything, and though clients were few, the feat was in the nature of a miracle, for Sophia had to cook. The articles which George Augustus Sala wrote under the title Paris Herself Again ought to have been paid for in gold by the hotel and pension keepers of Paris. They awakened English curiosity and the desire to witness the scene of terrible events. Their effect was immediately noticeable. In less than a year after her adventurous purchase, Sophia had acquired confidence, and she was employing two servants, working them very hard at low wages. She had also acquired the landlady's manner. She was known as Mrs. Frencham. Across the balconies of two windows, the Frenchams had left a gilded sign, Pension Frencham, and Sophia had not removed it. She often explained that her name was not Frencham, but in vain. Every visitor inevitably and persistently addressed her according to the sign. It was past the general comprehension that the proprietors of the Pension Frencham might bear another name than Frencham. But later there came into being a class of persons, habitués of the Pension Frencham, who knew the real name of the proprietors, and were proud of knowing it, and by this knowledge they were distinguished from the herd. What struck Sophia was the astounding similarity of her guests. They all asked the same questions, made the same exclamations, went out on the same excursions, returned with the same judgments, and exhibited the same unimpaired assurance that foreigners were really very peculiar people. They never seemed to advance in knowledge. There was a constant stream of explorers from England, who had to be set on their way to the Louvre or to the Bon Marché. Sophia's sole interest was in her profits. The excellence of her house was firmly established. She kept it up, and she kept the modest prices up. Often she had to refuse guests. She naturally did so with a certain distant condescension. Her manner to guests increased in stiff formality, and she was excessively firm with undesirables. She grew to be seriously convinced that no pension as good as hers existed in the world, or ever had existed, or ever could exist. Hers was the acme of niceness and respectability. Her preference for the respectable rose to a passion, and there were no faults in her establishment. Even the once despised showy furniture of Madame Foucault had mysteriously changed into the best conceivable furniture, and its cracks were hallowed. She never heard a word of Gerald, nor of her family. In the thousands of people who stayed under her perfect roof, no one, not one, mentioned Bursley, nor disclosed a knowledge of anybody that Sophia had known. Several men had the wit to propose marriage to her with more or less skilfulness, but none of them was skilful enough to perturb her heart. She had forgotten the face of love. She was a landlady. She was THE landlady. Efficient, stylish, diplomatic, and tremendously experienced. There was no trickery, no baseness of Parisian life that she was not acquainted with and armed against. She could not be startled. 
and she could not be swindled. Years passed, until there was a vista of years behind her. Sometimes she would think, in an unoccupied moment, "'How strange it is that I should be here, doing what I am doing!' But the regular ordinariness of her existence would instantly seize her again. At the end of 1878, the exhibition year, her pension consisted of two floors instead of one, and she had turned the two hundred pounds stolen from Gerald into over two thousand. End of Book Three, Chapter Seven.